Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Avatar Returns. I'm your host, Paul Smith of the Gobbledygeek Podcast, and joining me, as always, are... I'm Eric Sipple. And I'm Arlo Wiley. And each week, we discuss two to four episodes of the Nickelodeon animated series The Avatar of the Last Airbender and its sequel series The Legend of Korra. Eric and I have seen both series before, but this is Arlo's first trip to the world of Avatar, so there will be spoilers, but only up through the episodes that we're discussing tonight. And tonight finally here the beginning of the end is here at the avatar returns as we finally crack open the cover on the legend of korra book four balance um the final season of broadcast animated world of avatar uh, um, to... I, oh, oh man I, I made a joke about this on twitter uh-huh. and it was really only a joke but there's a little grain of truth in it which is that i joked that i only did this podcast so we could get to the <laughs> season and i could talk about it it's not entirely true. I actually have been really happy with this whole podcast, but I have been desperate to get to the end of Korra for a while. And it's not just like whether it's the best or not. It's just that it is an emotional payoff to a lot of things. And I am so excited. So excited. Unbelievably excited. Agreed. Okay, Arlo, are you excited? I am not excited at all. Okay. I wish I wasn't here. Okay, good. That's a perfect place to start. So uh, tonight we're going to be talking about uh, chapters 401, After All These Years, 402, Korra Alone, and 403, The Coronation. Uh, but first, uh, we'll do a little animated banter, or banter about animation, something like that. Uh, so, Eric, you and I both share a love, or at least a strong like in my case, uh, for the animated series Star Wars Rebels. And this past week uh, aired, I believe it's the penultimate episode of the season. I think I think the next episode is the season finale. Is that correct? Oh, is it? I didn't realize we were that close. Actually, I think um, so. I might wow. be I might be mistaken, but uh, at any rate, we're we're getting close to the the end of this season. But uh, this past week they aired the episode uh, titled "Twin Sons," which had been hyped like crazy <laughs> in the lead up to it. I kind of wish that they that in the hype they had left the fact that this was like the big uh, climactic uh, duel between Obi-Wan Kenobi, who has not, who he's, he's shown up in rebels, but only in an episode, I think, and only as his little holographic uh, warning The the character himself has never appeared. Yeah. It's only been, it's only been Ewan McGregor, Obi-Wan and only in a holographic recording telling everyone that the, Empire's killing all the Jedi and to get away. Right, right. So this marks uh, the character's first um, quote-unquote live <laughs> appearance on the show, uh, and it's his uh, climactic duel with uh, uh, Maul. He's not Darth Maul anymore, right? He's just Maul now. Yeah, and, and actually it's not just the first time he's been on the show. It is the first time in any of the animation we've gotten Alec Guinness. Obi-Wan. Yes, yes. So this, okay, so... <laughs> The, the elephant in the room is that they hyped up this big duel and uh, we're so excited to see Obi-Wan back. And I guess some people still care about Maul. At this point, I really don't. But still, there's a rivalry between these two characters that uh, dates all the way back to the, uh, the prequels to episode one. Um, but uh, they, they hyped this, this huge meeting between the two characters the final meeting and the actual duel itself lasted i think literally five seconds like it was it was it was over like that and some people are complaining i i feel like it was actually a strength but the best thing about this is that we get the a very deliberate shift from the clone wars era obi-wan which you refer to it as the ewan mcgregor obi-wan into the uh film 
universe, like the original trilogy version of Obi-Wan as portrayed by Alec Guinness. This is the, this is the line of demarcation between those two. And it was, it was virtually perfect for that alone, for, for the way it pulled that off. It was amazing. Yeah, they did. It actually, I I do like in the same episode that we get it, we get the holograph um, Clone Wars era one. And, and one thing I really like is they, they, did not have the voice actor. If it might be the same voice actor, but they didn't have him do. It's it's not. Um, it's a it's a different actor. That that's good. I actually really works because he's doing a Alec Guinness ish voice instead of a Ewan McGregor ish voice. Mm-hmm. And even though Ewan McGregor did a very good job of sounding Alec Guinness ish, they they give him a more appropriate voice, which is great. Um, one thing I didn't realize before we started talking about this too is that. Um, this is both directed and co-written by Dave Filoni. Right. This episode, so Filoni's back directing for the first time. Um, I think since the end of last season, mm-hmm. um, and he is only co-written a couple episodes this season, one or two. So, um, anyways, it's a, it's a, it's a big, it's a big deal. It's a big episode. Um, emotionally, I loved the duel. I thought it's so samurai movie. It actually goes from like the Wuja style Jedi stuff we've seen. There's actually another line of demarcation that I hadn't thought of. Instead of the like much more Wuja like. Um, fancy jumping around version of lightsaber battles. We get a like two move classic samurai dual move. It, it was thing here. It, it was actually so perfect because when they first face off, um, when when Obi Wan finally lights his saber, uh, he initially goes into the the Clone Wars era stance that we that you know we'd seen him fighting in as Ewan McGregor, uh, and then he. He, before the fight actually starts, he shifts and looks uh, in, he shifts into a much more, um, you know, uh, a staid, less kinetic looking style, much closer to what we saw in the original trilogy, Um, which that does, that does an amazing thing. One of the sort of disconnects that I've had, or one of the things I've had to work my brain around uh, going from like the original film trilogy to all of the extended universe stuff now in, that deals with the past when the Jedi were, were super ultimate badasses is the, when you go back to the original trilogy, the lightsaber fights are just not that good. <laughs> they're, they're really slow and really clumsy, especially compared to like all of the prequel stuff and the Clone Wars where, where, Jedi were, you know, super leaping through the air and uh, Ahsoka Tano does a spin move and beheads four Mandalorians in one swift strike. And so this was, I love the fact that they showed Obi-Wan doing this and it looked on camera like a deliberate choice. It looked like the character was, was acknowledging he is a different person now and he doesn't need to be drawn back into the same sort of extended, uh, drawn out battles that he's used to fighting with Maul. Um, it was it was much more straight and to the point. So Maul, who was still uh, fighting the way he always has, the exaggerated, extravagant, showy style, um, is taken out in like two seconds because Obi Wan just just doesn't do anything fancy. He just sidesteps and and like cuts him in half again. It's 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 beautiful. It's really like it, it's a perfect way of doing it. It cuts against expectations and in a really interesting way. It, it nods to the Kurosawa roots of the original Star Wars, mm-hmm. um, of like especially the first one. Um, like a, I'm not the whole trilogy as a whole, but like it has a very Kurosawa feel to the duel, which is great. But really, there is no one I think who gets Star Wars better than Filoni. I agree, and, man. I, they need to bring him into the films. And, and it's not just like what I love about him is 
when I when people tend to say that, they tend to mean, oh, he knows how to recreate the pre the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't. He understands everything about Star Wars, and he understands how to merge it all. He knows how to take the stuff that was interesting about the prequels and the stuff that's good in the original trilogy, and how to make it all feel like one universe. And no one else in the in the franchise can do that like him. No one. Yeah. He's a genius. Um. So there's something really interesting about this episode that I, I found fascinating. Uh, there's more in the reaction than what's going on. We can. I don't want to take up too much time with this, but right. it's it's interesting because um, Aaron is, was never a big Star Wars fan. She watched the original trilogy with me. You know, didn't hate it or anything. Just didn't think much of it. Watched the prequels, made fun of them, um, and but started to get interested when Disney bought it because she started needing to like be able to talk about it and got really interested in Rebels even before I was. She was excited about Rebels before I was, but. What I found interesting was she flipped her nerd shit over this episode. She was so excited about Obi-Wan. She was so excited about him, like, hearing Luke on the moisture farm at the end. Mm -hmm. Like, she was totally into the connections to the lore that this episode brought, which I found absolutely fascinating considering she didn't have, like, a nostalgic connection to it. You know what I mean? Like, her connection is very organic. It wasn't something from from her childhood. She's built up what she likes about Star Wars from pieces of what she's watched over time, and she lost it. She was so excited by this episode. She was more excited about this episode than I was, and I love this episode. I, so, I, I, I have a similar I have a similar thing going on with Pam, where I I know I've talked about this on podcasts in various places that, just, you know, just like your wife, she my wife did not grow up watching the Star Wars films. She she only watched them for the first time last year, maybe the year before just just very recently i finally wore her down and she watched him and uh i was expecting her she was not looking forward to it i i I had no idea that she would become a fan i just i wanted her to see them to say she had seen them and she did become a fan she she basically fell in love with them um blew me away it blows me away how much of a fan she is she is a much bigger fan of rebels than i am uh like she absolutely loves the show I feel like she was equally blown away by this episode and very satisfied with it. So, yeah, it's just it's it's crazy that the man kids grow up so fast, don't they, Eric? Oh, I know. All right, so I have not watched Rebels, so I can't comment on this. But now this is a good place to talk about it. This weekend, I am finally introducing Amber to Star Wars. Um, oh, wow. We, yeah, we 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 finally are, are making the time for it. And here's the, here's the thing, though. We're starting with The Phantom Menace. Oh, son. I, I am against this. I have advised against this strongly, passionately, repeatedly. She wants to start with The Phantom Menace. Oh, well. Be- because she claims it's the beginning of the story, I've explained to her it's not. It's the beginning of the story, you know, like 20 to 30 years after <laughs> You know, that was devised after the the actual story. Um, but she claims that since she knows the general what the general story of Star Wars is to at least the films, since she knows the general story and she knows she's going to watch all of them, she wants to start with episode one. Hmm. So, you know, I don't have a problem with this. I actually I mean, as long as she knows what, what she's getting into and she understands, I don't think there's any wrong order to watch it in. Um, provided you are um, clear-eyed about what you're getting into. I don't yeah, share I mean, Eric's I've, optimism there. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've explained, you know, all of my concerns 
to her. And you know what? Honestly, she could wind up liking the prequels. I don't know. Um, I, I think a big concern I'm having now is, though, like my greatest fear is she's going to really like the prequels and not the and original. Then, yeah, and then because you know, I've I even you know shared that concern with her. Like, you know, we're going to go from you know pretty in spots, you know, good CGI effects to old special effects to like stop motion animation and things like that. And so it's going to be different. When I, Paul, when I heard you talking about how you go back to the originals and the lightsaber fights, you know, are pretty slow or, you know, I, I don't think they're bad. I think they're much more like, you know, sw- sword fights instead of crazy insane lightsaber duels. Um, but it's going to be a major shift and I just, I really, I don't want this to backfire on me. <laughs> well, fingers crossed for you. I, I, <laughs> I really hope this works out. Um, Here, here's my suggestion. The, here's the deal you should ask her to make and see if she's behind this. Start with Phantom Menace. If she's like, I hated that and want to quit, then you switch to the Machete Order from there. And the Machete Order leaves okay. out uh, Phantom Menace. You could easily just start the Machete Order at that point. If she's right. cool with it, then you keep going normally and she's happy and there's no reason to be concerned. But, like, use that as your backup plan. Say, okay, if you watch Phantom Menace and you hate it and you want to quit, before you quit, let's try A New Hope and go okay. forward with the machete order from there. And that way there's, you know, if she likes it, then she was absolutely right about how she wanted to watch things, which I think is very likely. Um, if it turns out that she misjudged how what she was walking into, then um, you can try showing it in an order that's more, um, you know, pleasant. I- I have a question. Are you mm-hmm. are you going to? I'm, well, I guess probably not if you're trying to do that this weekend. I'm, I'm just wondering if if it would be worth it to see Rogue One before A New Hope. No, we've actually discussed that, and without even without me even saying anything, she doesn't. She wants to watch that after she's seen the originals because i i would have argued against watching it before a new hope because i think it's really intrinsically tied to a new hope and relies on a working knowledge of it that i that i think its makers wanted wanted it to be or or said that it did um but no we're not going to be able to do all of it this weekend we're going to get definitely get the first one maybe the second one we don't unfortunately we don't have a lot of a lot of free time uh so we're definitely going to get to the phantom menace this weekend and uh i'll report back i'll let you know let you know what's up all right cool so anyways let's uh let's get to the the main show shall we so here we are uh we're on episode 41 of this silly little podcast project so it's just about time that uh i figure out how to do something that with hindsight probably should have been doing this entire time We've alluded to the fact, Arlo and and Eric have alluded to the fact that I sort of write up these little episode plot synopses. Um, We don't post them on the website. We we don't do anything with them. I just write them up for my own uh, edification, and I've started sharing them with with the guys, and they like them. So (laughs) since we've never done anything with those, I've decided that for this final season, I'm going to give... Uh, sort of a brief synopsis, not of each episode, but of the the stuff that we're going to be talking about tonight. 
So for instance, we're talking about three chapters tonight. I'm about to lay out a synopsis of basically what those three chapters are, and then we can start talking. Sound fair? Yeah. Okay. I did not vote for this. That is so not true, Arlo. Stop lying to the people. I, I, I actually like literally like told you to do it. So. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Uh, the, my synopsis for these three chapters tonight. It's been three years since Avatar Korra defeated Zaheer and the Red Lotus. Republic City has made peace with the Spirit Wilds, even embracing them as a tourist attraction. Asami and Future Industries have led a new wave of industrialization, building a network of maglev trains to serve as public trans transportation and to connect the United Republic of Nations with the Earth Kingdom. Mako serves as private bodyguard to Prince Wu, heir to the late Queen Hao Ting's throne, while Opal and Kai and the other air nomads struggle to bring about a peaceful end to the anarchy that has plagued the kingdom since the queen's death. However, Kuvira, once captain of the guard of Z in Zaofu, now acting as interim president of the Earth Kingdom, has been using military force to reunite the fractured states of the kingdom. Refusing to cede power to the newly crowned king, she declares herself the rightful ruler of the newly dubbed Earth Empire. The world needs its avatar to bring balance in this time of transition, but Korra, supposedly recuperating from her injuries at the South Pole, has in fact disappeared. She walks the earth like Cain in Kung Fu, seeking an answer to why she is plagued by pain and doubt in the wake of the Venom of the Red Lotus. Unfortunately for her, she's about to meet her very own Yoda. I got to give it up for you, Paul and Arlo, for totally changing the format of the show in the last season. This is like, is this is like, like, is this like the version of like a show where the ratings are dripping and so they are dropping, so they bring in like a little kid. Yes, yeah. To, to yeah, do the stuff? the uh, the the synopses are our cousin Oliver. Exactly. There we go. Exactly. All right, um, hey, everyone. You're, by the you're way, I, final desperate season, everyone. I just want to clarify when I said I told you to do it, that sounded like I was like Paul, fucking do this now. It was you came to me and I was like, yes, good idea. I just want to clarify. Well, see, now you're wears, backing away from who it. Who wears like, the pants on this podcast? I, I don't want to take too much. It wasn't really me. It was just Paul did it and I didn't stop him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he waited till after I read the synopsis to back out, which means he didn't like it. So here's the thing. If if either of you, my co-hosts or listeners at home, don't want me to continue doing that, please let me know and we'll go back to what we did before. But in the meantime... Arlo, we're back to the regular bullshit of you being the noob. You're, this is your first time going yeah, through, so that. we're going to start with you. Uh, what did you think of these three? Guys, I have to say, I, I'm not sure there's been a better start to any season of the Avatar universe. <laughs> I mean, I I, I am... I, you know, I, I already love The Legend of Korra, so I was already all in on the show, but Holy cow. I absolutely loved these three episodes. I love the direction they're taking the show and the world in. And uh, I, I'm, I'm sad that I couldn't just immediately binge the next three. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I'm so happy to hear you say this, Carlo. I just, I am. I'm, I'm glowing right now. It's, it's crazy because I sometimes Arlo will let slip how he felt like sometimes I'll have a hint or suggestion of whether or not he's like into what we just watched or what he just watched or not, or not uh, going into this tonight. I, I really had no sense of whether uh, Arlo, you were going to be that effusive. So 
I'm very oh, pleased. Oh, I, I absolutely, absolutely adored it. The the thing that I really love about these is that so I think a running joke uh, over the the like year and a half we've been doing this podcast um, has been like. Well, that was a pretty adult thing for a, a yeah. Nickelodeon show to do. Ho, uh-huh. ho, ho. Um, and now it's gotten to the point where this doesn't feel like, you know, I'm no longer having that reaction. My reaction now is like, I, I, I want to, like, I want my reaction to be, I can't believe they aired this on Nickelodeon, but they didn't. Right. They, <laughs> this, this was, was, um, online only. Um, this feels to me much more like, uh, an animated show for adults. You know, it's it's not you know it's not so adult that kids can't watch it, but it's it's no longer not that the show not that it, either of the shows ever were, but it it feels like it's actively engaging in, you know, being a mature, more adult show than we've seen from the Avatarverse. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like every they've been building towards I think this tone. Um, I mean, I'm not even really building towards it because they they were like. I'd say three quarters into this tone for the last three seasons and then yeah. full bore into it by the end of the third season. Like the second yeah. half of the third season was, I think, just as mature in its like thematic content. Um, but and even the first season, I mean, honestly, we might be forgetting how how d- dark the first season got at times because the second season was so weird. But there was some pure existential terror built into the first season with what the threat that Amon had. Yeah. But now we're dealing with the trauma of all of it. And so it feels very accumulated and much more potent at this point. Okay. So that was actually going to be one of my, one of my first questions is like the, like you just said, this isn't the first time we've seen Cora have to deal with some kind of PTSD because she had those, the nightmares or whatever that were brought on by Amon from in season one. But that in season one, that really only lasted a couple of episodes who knows how long it's going to last in this, but certainly, I mean, this kind of bridges the, the very end of, of book three and then the first few episodes of book four. Um, it just feels like a much heavier deal now. And it's certainly having a much more profound effect on her than it did for that brief period in book one. Is that, does that, does that show a growth in the, the writing or storytelling, or is this something specific to the things that Cora has endured? I think it's something, uh, I mean, I, I think it probably is like uh, the writers, you know, growing into into the show and becoming stronger. But I think this is very specific to what uh, Cora endured, um, because if we go back to the lovely fan letter, one of the lovely fan letters that we got last week um, that mentioned, you know, when uh, Cora was, you know, chained up and. You know, she kept seeing her, you know, the different villains from the three different seasons. They mentioned how the common thread between those villains was how they were sort of um, chipping away at Cora's sense of self, making her doubt that there was any use for an avatar, period. Um, and now, I mean, the thing with the, I, I, well, I, hold on. I think every season, the entire series has sort of been about destroying Korra's sense of self. Mm-hmm. And now we've really gotten like when it happened with Amon, it was devastating, but she could get over it. But as she's continued 
to be worn down and now she's gotten to this point where, where she was very physically debilitated um mentally it is completely like restructured how she thinks about herself and yeah i think i think now we're seeing a cora whose sense of self has kind of systematically been you know annihilated yeah i think um I agree, Arlo. I think I think it's actually a mix of like there's a level that I think the writing has committed to dealing with this that wasn't there before, and it might be because Nickelodeon had given up on the show and they could. But it also is the culmination of of traumas. You know, I think that Cora is the kind of character that uh, values her strength to a point where she will brush off that she has trauma to deal with at all. And thus, up to this point, the traumas that she's faced, she's like, I'm the Avatar, you have to deal with it in the face of it every other time. And now she's at a point where that's not possible anymore. And um, she, Zaheer is sort of the, the apex of that and has made her powerless. And what's interesting that I hadn't thought of is, and they never mentioned this directly, which is interesting, Zaheer succeeded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> he, he has left them a world without the avatar and that she's so, and I, and I, that's, that's gotta be in her somewhere that Zaheer has effectively won by not killing her and not breaking the cycle, but he's left the world without an avatar and she's getting news. Like Kavir is putting the earth kingdom back together. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter if you're here. Yeah. And I was going to say, she actually mentions that a couple times that the, like she is, she says that the reason she's so upset and so desperate to like get better and go back uh, to Republic city is that she's the one that needs to be back there um, fixing things. Like she talks about Kuvira uniting the earth kingdom. That should be me out there doing that. Um, So yeah, this has been three years that the world has had to get by without an avatar. Um, And unlike the hundred year war, when, uh, when we went a hundred years without an avatar so far, at least the world hasn't, come to the brink of destroying itself. Um, Although the other interesting side of it is, is that now maybe Zaheer would argue if I was still out there, this wouldn't have happened, but Zaheer has created the conditions for greater authoritarianism than even existed before. Yes, exactly. His revolution. Right. He has unleashed right. a military dictatorship upon the world by taking down the earth kingdom the way that he did. Yeah. Guys, I just, I, I am, I marvel at the politics of the legend of Korra and how complex they are. I mean, of the entire avatar universe, because one thing I want to make clear is that I feel like a lot of the times when, you know, lately when we've been praising Korra for being, you know, so mature and so complex, I don't want that to be like, you know, in any way denigrating uh, avatar itself, because I think what we're seeing now in Korra is a culmination of what started with the very first episode of Avatar. I think the whole, if you take the whole, sh- the whole universe together as seven seasons of, of the same universe, it's all just gradually matured to this point. So I, and I'm just, I'm, I'm in awe. I like the, the world that's been built here. I mean, we don't, we don't get this kind of stuff in, in Western animation typically on, on television. It's, it's, it's insane. I agree. I mean, I've said this before because I always talk about like Korra being my most favorite, and it, and it sounds like I'm saying something negative about Avatar when I'm not because I love Avatar, and what Avatar did 
enabled the world as you said to get to get this complicated it's it's built off of everything that avatar built but this is Korra just sings my song you know like it's not it's not a matter of what's better or worse it's just that this kind of like i mean we we are in the middle of it we're getting into a season which is dealing with the big damn superheroes ptsd and directly not like sideways Korra is unable to fight. She's unable to hit the Avatar stage. She's unable to function as what she thinks she is because she is severely wounded by the stuff she went through. And I mean, let's take a, let's take animation out of the thing. How often? What was the last time you saw a TV show deal with PTSD seriously? That was like, especially like a genre TV show. You know what I flash back to, and this is such a, a an Arlo cliche, but it, it wasn't even the same thing. But um. I, I thought back to sort of um, uh, when she was bad, like the the beginning of Buffy season two, how that like really unusually dealt with like the emotional fallout of beating the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was only an episode. I mean, I, I could argue that later on the show does something else, but that was that was what popped into my head, and I can't really think of as at least as far as genre stuff goes, stuff that really delves into PTSD, and that was like twenty years ago. That, that takes your superhero and deals with PTSD too. Like yeah. not like a side character, but you know, putting a superhero through the, what is viewed by society as um, uh, like looked down upon week. You know what I mean? Like it's a kind of week that you're not supposed to feel when you're a hero. And hey, you guys, you guys love Iron Man three. Didn't Iron Man three do that? Yeah, actually Iron Man three did do a degree. Although, um, which is actually why I like it. That's a good, that's a fair call. That's a movie, not a TV show. I did say TV show. But oh, God. Oh, God. I, I also I also don't think – I don't know. It's been a while since I've seen it. I was going to say I don't think his uh, his debasement was quite as public as, as Cora's, but maybe I'm mistaken. Yeah, well, I mean it's but, – I mean, but I think that is – that was one of the reasons I liked Iron Man 3 too. That was actually yeah. a, a selling point for me in Iron Man 3 was that it – dealt so directly with him being uh, having to deal with it you can't come through horror and not and to shake it off like it's not what happens human minds are you have to process mental wounds the same way you have to process physical wounds Mm -hmm. and we have now gotten out of these three episodes two full episodes dealing with it and it's not finished Cora is not all better at the end of those two episodes she even finds her yoda as paul said and even that can't just magically fix her. There is no magical fix for where Cora is at this point. I just have so much, so much respect for that because something like what happened at the end with Zaheer and she's facing all the people telling her that she's not doesn't matter anymore and not being able to defeat Zaheer easily because the poison's getting to her. That last moment where Cora looks so broken at the end of that season feels like the kind of thing that a show would just fix in the pilot episode of the next season, mm-hmm. and they do not. And I'm, I'm just in love with. The, the a show that does this um yeah so so arlo since I, since uh, you're the noob i want to get your impression when the when the episode opens up with the three years later sort of thing how did you i mean my my first note is holy time jump batman <laughs> like i i was i was not spoiled on that i uh-huh. did not know that was going to happen and I, and I know time jumps have sort of become a, a commonplace thing in tv but i was not I was in no way expecting that, that for the Legend of Korra. Well, I I, and, I know we discussed a little bit how how odd it was to have uh what was it like a two month or maybe three month time jump between 
the end of book two and the beginning of book three. And now here we are, a three-year time jump. And I love, I love how the show opens. You know, it shows how different the world is. You have the opening narration that's sort of like um, uh, a tourism ad mm-hmm. for Republic City. You know, showing Avatar Korra Park and saying, you know, she hasn't been around for three years, but we can't wait to welcome her back home. And, uh, you know, we just see how everything has changed. You know, we see Kai and Opal as, as like a dynamic duo of, uh, mm-hmm. of, of, of airbending, just flying around, stopping crime. I mean, uh, we have the whole thing with Prince Wu and his forthcoming coronation and, and Mako you know, being consigned to his role as a bodyguard. Um, and then I w- we'll talk more about this in a minute, but the one I'm sort of most intrigued by is Bolin working with Kuvira. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we, we can get to that in a minute if you guys want to, or we can get to it now. Well, actually, before we get to that, maybe I would be curious for your take on Kuvira because it might help for us to talk about Kuvira before we talk about Bolin working for her yeah so i was not expecting kuvira to basically be the villain um because i know you guys said that you know she appears in the background uh throughout season three Mm -hmm. but we don't actually really see her until the what the final episode of season three and her introduction there um who whose life does she save well she's it's tonrock She's nursing Tonrock. Yeah, she does. Yeah, it's Tonrock right. she saves. Yeah, yeah, that's right. She saves Tonrock's life, and you know, just from that one scene where she saves his life and then seems pretty pleasant, I thought she was gonna be like a like a good guy, and I guess de- because this show is not that simple, depending on your like political or philosophical bent, maybe she is the good guy. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she, she is trying to, she's trying to do a noble thing, unite the earth kingdom, but in a, in a very ignoble way. I mean, like Eric, I love that you said, cause this had, that had not even occurred to me. I love that you said that, uh, Zaheer and his bid for, you know, total anarchy has instead paved the way for greater authoritarian rule. Um, and I, I love that the show's engaging with that and dealing with that. Um, and yeah, Kuvira just seems like a, a terrible person. Uh, Kuvira is probably, well, at least the first time through, she was my favorite of the antagonist just because she's the, um, the, I don't want to say morally gray because she certainly does some bad things, um, that are bad, but she has maybe because we've like seen the conditions that led to this. She, she's the one villain who doesn't really come out of nowhere. She emerges not just from a character we kind of saw a little bit of, but she emerges out of Zaofu, which is a culture that we've really come to know, and emerges from Zaofu with a very specific view of what Zaofu should have been doing and wasn't doing. So there's a level of connection to understanding what she's about. You know what it is? This is the first time we've had a villain where we understand their plan from day one. Like we understand, well, not only their plan, but we understand their motivations mm-hmm. from day one. And I and I love that the goal is not to you know kill the avatar like this is the first villain we've had where her her entire reason for being isn't you know i i I must destroy the avatar yeah so 
Um, I feel bad that this is so we had a listener, a regular listener, um, a friend of mine uh, named Nick, uh, who had to stop listening after the Avatar part because he's never seen Korra and he's waiting for his kids to get older um, before he watches Korra with them because they're a little younger and he wants them to be able to appreciate it, which I agree with. I think it's a really good call because you want to it's not like a it's going to be bad for them kind of thing, but there's a lot going on that you that you'll get more out of being older. But I feel bad because this season was made for him. And I, he's talked about this with the little bus on Twitter back when we were watching this, but his biggest gripe in Avatar was the Earth Kingdom and the way that they sort of just glossed over the fact that it's kind of an awful monarchy and they just put the monarchy back in power mm-hmm. at the end of the show. And like he has and understandably it was sort of like, what is the deal with us like them like they're so big on like the, the hitting the political notes the rest of the time and they just let this Earth Kingdom thing go. And this the end of season three and this is like the correction for it because now we are head on dealing with the questions about the Earth Kingdom being this monarchy that has not functioned, that no, they have not produced a single good ruler in generations from what we can tell. And the the fallout of that happening is Kavira. So I, this, I feel like the season was made for him and I hope one day soon he can watch the show because I think that I think he's going to be super happy that they dive into this plot line. So shout out to a listener who can't appreciate this with us right now. <laughs> Pouring one out for shout you, Shout out to someone who won't hear the shout out. It's all right. It matters that you shout it out into the void. It doesn't matter. You know, we said it. I'm going to pour this drink out into my mouth now. <laughs> um, so Kuvira, at least just based on these first three chapters, uh, is kind of looking like sort of a textbook fascist in the making. Um, because we're getting, we, we see a little bit of it firsthand with her uh, basically manipulating that governor of the, the state of Yai uh, into signing that voiced, document. Voiced. Hold on. This here it goes. Here it goes. Yeah. I knew this, this must be addressed. Voiced by Burt Cooper himself, Robert fucking Morse. I mean, I, I I heard his voice and instantly knew who it was. See, you, shot, mean, you shot your wad an episode too early, Arlo. Last week is when you pimped uh, Smoke It's In Your Ears. You should have saved it for tonight. I know. I was, I was actually thinking you were actually going to give a full pitch. I, I'm so disappointed you didn't say Burt Cooper from Mad Men, which was discussed in depth by Smoke It's In Your Ears, a Mad Men podcast available. <laughs> You, well, you, you just did I, it I thought, for me. Available on iTunes. There you go. You should have just gone there, but you made me do it. See, I, Arlo is the Kuvira of this show. He is manipulating you into doing his his work. Yes, and he totally I, is. I assume that they got Robert Morse because they already have Kieran Shipka on board. That's a good call. I didn't sure think about that. Why. I'm sure that's why. He, yeah. he's, he, he definitely is one of those voices that, like, an avatar does this occasionally, so it's not a problem, but his voice sticks out so much in this and not in a bad way because they've had avatar voices like his so he, he fits into the world but it was definitely yeah. like hey there's a voice i know what is that voice oh yeah yes. yeah i i had a moment of like instant recognition where like i didn't even have to look it up like i looked it up after the fact just to make sure i was right but instantly i was like holy fucking shit that's burt cooper like <laughs> i i was like i think i probably sat up in my chair like hairs standing up on the back of my neck oh jeez okay um Arlo's having a moment I was really excited. with his Burt Cooper 
realization mm -hmm. here. That's right. Uh, in the meantime, so yeah, we see a little bit of, of that with uh, Kavira manipulating that guy, Burt Cooper, into uh, signing the documents, um, which basically gives her control uh, of that state, that province or whatever. Um, oh. But then we also hear reports like uh, Tenzin later uh, is talking about getting reports that uh, Kuvira has been throwing dissenters into prison camps. We don't actually see that, but but that's a report that's out there. President Raiko uh, actually goes so far as to say that uh, basically he said so uh, Prince Wu, even though he is the rightful heir, he's obviously been handpicked by <laughs> uh, by Republic City, by President Raiko uh, and the other world leaders uh, The the implication here is that he's basically going to be a puppet government. Like Raiko even says, Oh, don't worry. We're sending plenty of, of people along. Like this guy's a goofball. We're sending plenty of people along who will actually run the government. Um, right. And when uh, Tenzin is expressing concern over what Kuvira is doing in order to unite the earth kingdom, you know, president Raiko's like, I will, uh, when the puppet government, you know, that we are setting in to replace her when she, when she very politely steps aside because she promised me she would, you know, we'll fix all of this later. We'll correct her mistakes later. Um, that's, that's evil, man. That is, that is totally, that's just dark. Let her, let her tear this. I mean, just do all these horrible things because we're going to put a puppet government in to, to actually run the government, the country. And uh, we'll fix right. all this in post. <laughs> It, it really, yeah. it really, it really does. Like it feels like this, this world had deserves Kavira yeah. at this point. Um, it, when we're talking about Kavira, I don't want to let go though the fact that she gets what I think is the most badass introduction any villain gets. Okay, in yes. this series, yeah, she does. We establish her bona fides right out of the gate. We get her on the train talking and being military, and then she becomes the coolest metal bender on the planet. My notes are. Uh, for that scene. Uh, Kuvira is very serious about getting the Earth Kingdom 100% united. And then, uh, next line, in a very badass and kind of a terrifying way. <laughs> <laughs> so, I honestly, I don't know if this has ever been resolved uh, 100%, but I know that among fans, there's a little bit of controversy over what exactly Kuvira is doing. So, I want to ask Arlo, since this is your first time seeing her do all this, um, some people believe that she has actually unlocked uh, a new form of metal bending, that she's actually magnet bending. What? There are people that read that whole scene of her taking out the bandits and, you know, uh, like she uses metal bending to throw those metal straps around everybody, but then she also brings them together. And there's just some people read that scene as if she has magnetized those things so that everybody, like everybody gets stuck to the rails. She, she makes one person's, you know, the metal wrapped around somebody's eyes attached to the metal wrapped around somebody else's wrists or whatever. You know, what? I'm, Arlo, what's your take on that? that? Okay. That, that actually is interesting. What, what's your take Arlo? I feel like armed with this knowledge, I need to go back and watch that scene again. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. They, they are stuck to the, the, the rail. You're right. In a way that I wasn't sure exactly how they were stuck. That's very possible. I get, I was so fixated on how awesome it is that she has built herself a suit, a suit of armor. That is her weapons. Right. I was like yeah. totally fixated on how cool it is that her armor is like an endless supply of knives basically. Yeah. Um, but you're right. They, she, they are stuck to 
that. So maybe she is mad. Yeah. Maybe she's or or they might already be magnetized. It's possible that there's a that there's some magnetization to that metal in the first. Place. I suppose. Now I don't know how far this argument goes, and I, I like I said, I can't remember if this is ever resolved in the like Eric. Maybe you can say when Arlo's not on mic. <laughs> I don't remember if that question is answered definitively, but I know that there's debate amongst the fans. Some of them think that she's magnet bending and others are like, no, she's just metal bending. Like she can, a, a metal bender can wrap metal around your arm and then move you around with it. Like, so she's not, she didn't magnetize those things to make people stick to the rails. She, although you know what? Nobody, I don't know. Anyways, it, it's a magnet. It's a magnetic train. So maybe that, maybe the rails are magnetic anyways. I don't know. But uh, you could argue that since metal benders, uh, no, it's fire. It's fire bending that has the lightning. <laughs> Never mind. I was gonna say, you know, electricity well, creates magnetism. So well, I will say metal benders could, in theory, by moving the the by shifting the the molecules into the right polar like the the polar order. That's all it is. Uh-huh. Is magnetizing is organizing the like the poles of all the the molecules to be in the right direction the same direction to create a magnetic field mm-hmm. so in theory that could happen i'm gonna say i don't think she is but she is with varic too so who knows what right. she picked up from varic um but be, before we also because i know we're gonna have other stuff we're gonna want to talk about beyond um kavira herself but there's something else i want to call out that i find very interesting about kavira's place in the overall series mm-hmm. which is that you know in for the first time in a lot of ways this feels like the wheel turning. The cycle has turned, and we have gone from the Fire Nation being the Imperial overlords at the beginning of Avatar to the Earth Kingdom now being this empire. Mm-hmm. We have now the idea of someone for the the world's good, like creating order. Now it's the Earth Kingdom, which is things cycle through the elements in the Avatar cycle, mm-hmm. and now it's the Earth Kingdom doing basically being the antagonist of that the fire nation was earlier on by being um, very order based and making uh, belligerent comments about the people around them. So I think that's very interesting. I can't wait for years down the line when it finally becomes the air nomads turn to be the despotic (laughs) uh, world ruling culture. Now that they're the X-Men. It's going to, it's going to be Milo. (laughs) It's going to be Milo. Yes. Oh man, Milo. You're right. It's absolutely going to be Milo. Emperor for life. Milo. Um, all right, well, uh, before we move on, since we were talking about Kuvira, let's talk about Bolin, since he's obviously fallen under Kuvira's spell. So how do we feel about that? Uh, like, we, we see I'm... we see how how uh, potentially dangerous Kuvira is. How, do we, is it believable that Bolin would be so naive as to, to fall under her spell well, like this? Here's the thing. I feel like Bolin frequently gets dragged into dragged into things without really realizing what's going on mm-hmm. um and only later does he come to, does he have like an epiphany as to what's actually happening um and i don't know like I, I feel like i need to see more before i pass judgment because right now i'm not sure how i feel about the fact that he's apparently so naive that he didn't really realize what was happening and now that it is happening now that she you know um you know, performed a, a coup mm-hmm. uh, that he's rationalizing. I mean, I, I get that if you're stuck in a shitty position like that, you want to tell yourself you're doing the right thing. I just don't, I don't know. I need to see more to, to tell if it's something I think Bolin would do. Let's remember two things here. One is, yes, he has been caught up in things before when he's been naive. And one of them 
it was most of season two with Varric. Um, and that's true. Varric is there right now. Someone yeah. who he had a tendency to overfollow and never really broke out of that. Even though he eventually realized Varric was bad, he never stopped liking and admiring Varric. Kind of like us. Yeah. So, so I mean, not only has he fallen under someone's spell before, one of the people's spell he fell under is actually now under Kavir's spell too. So, I, that, that's a, I, that's a really fair point. I can buy into it from that. We'll, we'll see. Oh, I also want to see where it goes. I agree with you. I think it's worth seeing exactly how it plays out because I don't think it's unbelievable that he is where he is right now. The question is, is does it resolve in a way that feels right to Berlin? Yeah. Yeah. I just I, I look to the scene when after after the governor of of Yai has signed the paperwork and Kuvira's people come in with humanitarian aid finally, which they could have given at any point, but now is when they decide to do it. Um, I just like Bolin is so happy. Like Bolin is just so pleased to be handing food out to these people and to genuinely be helping people. So. Yeah, I, I know. See, I, I believe that he got on board with, you know, uniting the Earth Kingdom, you know, because he wanted to help because he is a really good person and he wants to do good. Um, I don't know. Like I said, I need to see more to, to see how I feel about the fact that he's still sticking with it. Um, also, he's with Opal now. That's nice. Mm-hmm. But who knows for how long, considering she's not yeah, a fan of his boss. <laughs> Yeah. So no. let, so let's talk about uh Eric mentioned the X-Men. Uh we could also call them the new Jedi Order or whatever. The new the new uh Air Nomad super team. Uh what do you yeah. think what do you think about that, Arlo? I think that's great. I think that's a natural progression of of where they were the last time we saw them. Um we don't see much of Janora here, do we? No, we see her very briefly. Uh, in flashback, okay. we see her still with the shaved head looking very much like Aang, and then we see her kind of, yeah. I think, at the very end of the third episode. Is that when we yeah. see her? When we, we see all the kids at some point, right? We see Janora, Milo, and... Mm, yeah. yeah. At the end, when, when uh, Tenzin sends them on a mission to go find the Avatar. Yeah. Um, so what, what about their new, uh, their new X-Men suits that they wear? They're... I love them. They're flying, oh, they're actually, flying squirrels. Um, yeah, they, it kind of reminded me of uh, Kai was doing some moves when they were taking out those thieves that were like Spider-Man-ish. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they, they do the free-falling thing. They've even got the webbing. Oh, the web wings, that what you're thinking of? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, yeah, the web wings. Yeah. I love that scene like when, when his wing has been slashed and so he can't glide and Janora or not Janora Opal has to has to save him. I love how she does that. It's it's straight out of any movie, any action movie that has uh, you know, people fighting in parachutes. And <laughs> when the one person has to fall faster than the other, except you see her use the, her air bending to give herself a boost as she jumps off of Lefty. Do, do you think um the, the, the not just the fact that there's wings, but the way that they work specifically remind me a lot of um hiccups wings and how to train your dragon too yeah. i wonder and i wonder if they were if there was any inspiration point there for how to train your dragon well, too i mean i wouldn't be surprised well, if he was a fan of avatar so yeah well they both they both came out the same year didn't they 2000 Two? the, the second one came out 2012 first hang on let me mm. see no it was Wait, not no, that long no. ago no no it was not that long ago well the first was one it? was 2010 i know and it was it was several years was it 2014 2014 
Okay. That the same yeah, year so, as yeah. That's the same year as uh, as this book of Korra. Wow, some synchronicity there on uh, web wings. Hmm. I guess everyone's a fan of Spidey's <laughs> web wings that no one ever actually gets. Web, web wings are making a comeback, or at least they were three years ago. There you go. Um. um yes, but I, I'm I'm a huge fan of the new the new Earth Nation. I love the payoff of where they what Tenzin decided was for them to get out into the world, mm-hmm. and they're straight superheroes, straight up. Yep. Superheroes. Um, and uh, Kai, it seems Kai is officially in a relationship with Janora, although that's literally all we get of that. <laughs> Opal's yeah. like, well, what about you and Janora? We're good. And then <laughs> that's the last we hear about it. So yeah. who knows if he's exaggerating how good they are. But um, All right. Uh, Wu. Arla, what would you think of Prince Wu? <laughs> I just I I told I told Eric this uh, over text message that literally I've been waiting since the first episode of this podcast since we started this whole insane project to to get to the whole woo down thing I I've wanted to shout woo down so many times and you would have had no fucking clue what I was talking about <laughs> and finally we have come to the the woo down moment Prince Wu is super fucking obnoxious but that's because he's supposed to be. Yeah. So yeah, he's, uh, Amber, uh, was in the room while I was watching these and she, uh, she's watched a lot of avatar, like when it was originally on the air. Mm. Um, but she's never seen Cora. And, uh, so she had, she had a reaction to something else. We're definitely going to get to in a second, but, um, you know, she saw, um, uh, Prince Wu after you know he after the coup and he's like where are my grandfather's taffeta pantaloons <laughs> and he's going on that rant and she's like wow he's 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 a whiner <laughs> and I was like yeah I, I kind of relate oh I've never I've never seen myself in a character <laughs> in either of the shows like I have in Prince Wu do you but do you have moves like Wu does anyone have moves like Wu? No, I, I don't think so. Moves, moves like Wu sounds like a, <laughs> a, either a hit single or a, a terrible uh, movie circa 2002. Why not both? <laughs> Why not both? <laughs> I want to live in that world. Poor Wu, who is not an unlikable person on every level. I mean, he's a total creep with women in a way that makes him pretty unlikable, but... Good lord. Where what what is with the entire royal family of the Earth Nation? How I mean I I if nothing even if you didn't hate the Dai Li by this point, realizing that the Dai Li have been keeping these people in power for who knows how long. Uh, um, well have have we seen any good royalty on Avatar? I mean there's the Fire Nation and they were up and up until and even including to a point Zuko, they were all pretty fucking bad. Yeah. Um, well, so Zuko, Zuko we, shows this, this, signs of getting better, hopefully. But well, well, absolutely. Old Zuko, Z- Zuko, Zuko and Korra seems okay. Yeah, oh, I completely agree. And you know, in the comics last week, we saw that the very first Fire Lord was a good dude. But on either of the shows, we've never gotten a good impression of royalty, and I cannot imagine that's a coincidence. I mean, yeah. there, there was again. We get into the the weird dichotomy of there's. Uh, there was the king of Bossing Se, but then there was also King Bumi, 
of Amashi. Oh, that. Okay, well, yeah. I but, guess there was King, King Boomy was terrible. He he was terrible in That's entirely true. different ways, but yeah, yeah. <sighs> Anyways, yeah. So so where do you think this is going, Arlo? I mean, we're we have much more to discuss, and we're we're nowhere near getting to the resolution of any of this. But just based on on how horrible all of our examples of royalty have been up to this point, do you think the show is going to resolve that somehow? I think so. I mean, I don't think it's an accident that we keep seeing, you know, how awful royalty can be. I, I'm, I'm assuming the show is going to, like, put an end to at, at least the monarchy of the Earth Kingdom. I mean, obviously, that's what Kuvira is trying to do. But I, I think the show is going to put the kibosh on that before it's over. As far as, like, royalty in general, I don't know. That's a good question. I like it. And uh, have so uh, there's a big there's a big catch up we're gonna have to do with Korra. But do we want to make sure we've caught up with all the other side characters since that's what the first episode does anyways? Yeah. Is there? Mm-hmm. And I do really we want to talk about the other people first? I love that that's what the first episode does because you know like halfway through the first episode I was like, oh they're not gonna get back to Korra until like the very like final moments of this episode are they? And still I didn't I did not like. I was not expecting where they were going with that. Um, well, who else do we have to catch up with? Um, As- Asami, we don't get an awful lot of her. Asami it- seems to be in major, like, like professional, like diplomat mode. Like she, she f- it feels like she's speaking on Cora's behalf. Mm-hmm. Like when Cora can't be there, like she's serving that function. Um, and she, uh, like we learn from one of her letters, one of the letters that she writes to Cora, we learn that she's uh, future industries has just been given a contract, a major contract to, uh, to industrialize Republic city, which is like I mentioned in the synopsis, that's where now they've got the new central station, the new central train station. And um, yeah, I mean, so she's been kept busy on that uh, point and uh, it's not mentioned in any of these episodes. I don't think it's ever even mentioned on the show, but uh, I did read in the, in the back matter, the legend of Korra book four art of book, the creators talk about how it was always their intention that, uh, Asami designed those flying suits for the air nomads. Nice. Very cool. Um, so we mentioned that Mako is Prince Wu's bodyguard, but I think we need to, we need to, to deal with that for a second. Okay. Um, I have on, on this show perhaps been a professed, um, I'm not going to say hater, but I haven't been, I've been a Mako doubter. Okay. Like what is Mako's point on this show? What does he add to the dynamic? Why is he so boring? <laughs> um, I, 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 I will say these three episodes are the most I've been invested in Mako since the first season of the show. That is so crazy. He barely does anything. Well, he, what, I don't know. So, I don't know so what I, were you so invested in there? The fact that he actually, like, I don't know. So, so he's, he took a lot of pride in the fact that he was a detective uh-huh. and, you know, he, he's slumming it as Wu's manservant and assumes that he'll be able to go back to being a detective. And then Lynn tells him that that's not, true he's gonna he's gonna stay on and he's just we know how talented he is and how capable he is and he's stuck guarding this you know this whiny child 
And I, I don't know. Like, it's nobody wants to turn into Vin Diesel from the pacifier. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel for him. And I'm, I, I can imagine this plot with, with Wu, this little side thing he has going on with Wu, who seems obsessed with Mako in like an unhealthy way. Right. Um, I, I can imagine that like going to an interesting place. So like in, in book two and book three, you know, Mako definitely served a, a purpose in the plots of those respective seasons, but I was pretty bored with him in general. I, I liked him in book one and now in book four, I'm it's the first time since book one that I've gotten an indication that maybe he's going to go somewhere as a character. Interesting. I, I actually, I see what, what Arlo is talking about. I, I, am not the Mako doubter. Okay, actually, I can't remember where I was with Mako earlier in the show. I actually can't remember. I may have been where Arlo was at one point and forgotten, but um, I agree. This is actually a... This is the perfect use of Mako because it strains his commitment to duty with his ethical beliefs and in a way that he doesn't know what to do. And that's always interesting. When you put a character in a place where one very strong part of them wants to pull in one direction and another in an, in like a completely different direction. And now he's stuck with this guy that he doesn't exactly hate, but doesn't want anything to do with and wants to be a detective instead, but they're not going to let him be a detective. So now he has to decide what he's going to be. And it's an interesting mirror to Bolin. And I think this is the other piece of Bolin being with Kuvira is through various reasons of dis- like duties and things that they made up decisions, they've ended up on two sides of this Earth Kingdom. Yeah, debate. yeah. I, I was and, I was going to say that um, I, I'm not the Mako doubter that Arlo or possibly you, Eric, <laughs> have been. But uh, and and I've said many times one of my favorite things about Mako and Bolin is when they come together as brothers and they they're like the the dynamic duo. They're the fighting duo or whatever the the siblings. Um, but it is interesting to see them now in a position where they're butting heads and actually like uh, having, you know, philosophical differences or, or ethical, moral differences. Um, so, uh, you know, on the one hand, I don't want to see uh, poor Mako and Bolan have to fight each other, but it is fascinating that they're they find themselves in this position. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So um, have we did we hit everyone? I think we got everybody. Um, All right. All so right. that that leads us to the actual reveal of where Cora is. And Arlo, I'm curious for what your reaction was to the very end of this episode, where we get the our finally get our Cora reveal. Well, my first reaction was, "Fuck, Cora's an MMA fighter." Um, which was actually one of the inspirations the creators have said. I think we talked about this earlier. The creators yeah, said that nice. they, when they were designing Korra, they kind of went for an MMA look. So I was reminded of um, like Wolverine in the first X-Men movie, mm-hmm. you know, doing those like underground mutant fights and stuff. Um, I actually like, I, I, I was really, I was really surprised by that because I, for whatever reason, I wasn't expecting the show to pull like that rug out from under us where, you know, Cora's not on the ship with Tonrock. She actually left, you know, the South Pole six months ago. Um, I wasn't expecting that. And I was really surprised by her whole underground fighter thing. The only 
the really the only significant criticism I have of these three episodes is I don't really like in the Cora alone episode how it turns out that was sort of like we picked up with her like mid journey and then it sort of confusingly has to go back and like before that and I, I, I don't know. Like there's a really awkward moment during uh, Cora alone where you know we're getting the flashbacks and everything and that's great, and then it catches up to like where we are sort of, and then it has to reveal that like where we picked up with Cora was only like one moment on this other like thing that she's doing. I don't know that didn't that didn't really work for me. Am I explaining that in any sort of way that makes sense? Yeah, it's a little. I mean, it's a little confusingly loud. It actually took me a little bit to catch what it is. I actually like it, um, but it. It is a little dis- disconnecting. Um, the The thing I like that they do is by having her get beat up in that MMA fight, she has bruises on her face, which help connect whether we're before or after mm-hmm. that moment. Um, that and once- that and the haircut and the change of clothes. I think it's once once you realize you know once you learn what to look for, what little uh, continuity tricks to follow. I, I think it's easier to tell where you are in time. I, I'm Arlo. I'm a little disappointed that you that this show went um, Terrence Malick on its use of time, and you're 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 trashing it for it. How is how is that like Terrence Malick? There were no wheat fields. Cora was not twirling through them. I there... said in its in its use of time, motherfucker. <laughs> Jeez. Or, there were no dinosaurs. Or you could say Pulp Fiction with the whole bouncing forward and backward. I don't know. Maybe I just need to see that again. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I was expecting. Like, I don't know. There is, there is that moment where like it catches up to where we were. Then it sort of like speeds through what we've already seen. That, okay. That but, moment that you're talking about. Cause uh, that was an interesting choice. Like I, uh, it did feel, yeah. it did feel weird that they, they caught up to the, the underground bending match and then sort of fast forwarded through her almost getting run over by the car, her meeting the little dog. In the yeah. Street. Um, Exactly. I'm not entirely sure why they did that brief little moment there, but it, did, it didn't really and bother th- me. And that's more what I was talking about than anything else. I, I think they were trying – this is one of those cases where I'm not – I I like that they tried something different and a little bolder. And that when you do that, not every formal choice you make works mm-hmm. perfectly. But I respect that you know it's hard for a TV show that's late in its years to do formally um, challenging works and what they're doing. What I do like about the overall structure of this episode is it gives us the ability to go back to that fight and we see Cora's hallucination in it, which yes. I think is a really interesting thing that you couldn't have done another way. So I like that a lot. So as the as the resident uh, fight fetishist here on this podcast, I have to say we, we didn't really talk about the, the uh, underground fight that she had. It was super brief. It was not nearly long enough for me, but it was great. I loved the choreography of that, especially the finishing move that the, that her opponent did, like running up the wall and kicking the rock down into her head. Um, but yeah, Eric, like you said, I also love that we then revisit that same fight from Cora's point of view, and we get to see that in her head, she wasn't even fighting that other person. She was fighting this... She was fighting Negacora. She was fighting uh, yes. her dark shadow. Negacora. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually I actually have the phrase Negacora in my notes. I mean, that's what it is. That's what it is. Um, so, yeah, I, all right, let's talk about Negacora. Um, uh, like, Arlo, what are your thoughts on, on Negacora? Like, what, what, do you, what do you think that is or what does that represent? 
I mean, I think, I think it's a manifestation of, you know, Cora having to, you know, she's haunted by that, by how low she was brought. She's haunted by, you know, like this past version of herself that was so weak and beaten, but it was also like the last time she was, she exhibited any real strength. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just think she's, she's tormented by the, uh, it's, it's a manifestation of her trauma. And that's an interesting take about and I, that I, um, I think I, you know, I, I like because um, it's not just Cora, it's Cora with the chain around her arm. It's mm-hmm. it's it's, Cor- very... it's it's Cora in the Avatar state that she was last able to be in. Yeah, it's it's the Avatar state and and carrying around the chain that she was fighting Zaheer with mm-hmm. at that point. It's a very specific specter, which I like. So I can't remember if we if we used the R word when we were talking about that whole traumatic experience that Cora went through at the end of book three. Um, but something about what you were just talking about, Arlo, made me made me think of the uh like what is the ptsd that cora is going through exactly and when we see that the manifestation of that um is the is the negacora it's the her with the chains around her wrists and and being that's when that was the last time she was able to be in the avatar state and she was forced to be in that avatar state um so that was a violation have we used the rape have we used the word rape at any point I, I I think that's a first for um, the Avatar Returns. Okay, I mean I mean I'm just wondering. Obviously, the show we talk all the time about how dark the show is. It is it's never going to go that dark. <laughs> Actually, use that word. But do we? Am I the only one that thinks that that is a kind of what's going what? on here? It was a violation well, think, of her. Well, I think I think that maybe if we step it back to something a little more um, abstract. I mean, I think that. She was forced into the Avatar state, but her and her and her Avatar state is also poison. Like that poison forced her into the Avatar state, and that poison is a part of her Avatar state, and she actually can't even control that Avatar state, and she loses the fight as a result. It it is, I would say that you know. So I actually would let's loop this back to to Amon, in that Amon represented her fear of losing being the Avatar entirely. Right. Like Amon, the, the elemental existential fear of Amon was that he would remove from her what she is. And with Zaheer, it is using what she is against her to end the Avatar cycle and forcing her um, to use a power that she is now vulnerable. It, it Actually, that's what it is, is it turned her power into a vulnerability. It turned the Avatar state into a weakness because he was using the Avatar state as a way to end the Avatar cycle. So if Amon represents the loss of power... Um, Zaheer represents the more corrupting view that her power is actually a weakness. Hmm. I like it. I like it. We haven't had an Eric headcanons day in a while, so... Um, <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, what else? So... Have, but wait, wait, before we get off this for what it's worth, have we mentioned that this is a episode um, title format um, reuse from the Avatar thing, there was an episode called Zuko Alone. Right, which was oh, right. thematically very similar to this. Yeah. Nice. That that was uh that was Zuko doing his uh Kane from Kung Fu thing. 
And that was one of the best episodes of Avatar. It was. Here's what I find interesting about this. So Zuko, Zuko alone is an expression of why Zuko is the best character of his show. And, and, and Avatar is typical of a show like that where the hero is not the most interesting character in the show. Mm-hmm. Someone else is the most interesting character in the show. Korra is one of the rare shows where Korra is the most interesting character in her show. She's There is no Zuko that is like the more fascinating emotional journey. Korra gets the best emotional journey. So yeah. while Zuko gets this Zuko alone episode, it's Korra who gets the Korra alone episode in this show so i find that very interesting uh, you know i just my gut instinct was to push back against that <laughs> eric <laughs> i i wanted to resist the notion that cora is the most interesting character but i i can't i think you are i think you're right i think i have to agree with you on that i'm still kind of sad that uh, somewhere in an alternate reality there is an episode called bolin alone that we will never <laughs> get to see but i have to agree in the world that we live in uh in Legend of Korra, I, I, she may not necessarily be my quote-unquote favorite character on the show, but she's definitely the most interesting of, of the main cast. Wow. I'm, I can't believe Paul agreed with me on that. I, I'm going to take another. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um, so, so this episode, though, does... We get a lot of, like, interesting things. I love her going to the, the tree uh, to yeah. meditate. Yeah. Um, and it not helping, but... Let's be honest, there's one really important thing to talk about in this episode, and we should just get to it. Well, there's there's two. That, before the... before we get to the big one, I assume you're talking about Yoda. There, there's, yeah. a, there's another character. Uh, so we haven't really talked about the fact Is that... Is it the puppy? Yes, it's absolutely the puppy. Uh, which, the by puppy the, who, which, tur- who turns into the cute little spirit? Yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, Pam was in the room with me when I was watching this, and she she's seen it before, so she knows better, but... Like she just saw it out of the corner of her eye. She was hoping that that was baby Naga. No, like, no, no, I'm sorry. But um, no. So Arlo, you mentioned the fact we've mentioned the fact that this episode is told very non-sequentially. There's lots of flashbacks and we get to see, you know, she, she went to uh, the Southern water tribe to recuperate three years ago. And she was supposedly only going to go for a couple of weeks. And then she was there for a few months and turns out she was there for almost three years. Um, but one of the people that she spent time with in the Southern water oh, yeah. tribe. That's right. That's right. Um, I forgot. Yeah. I forgot. We... Oh, how'd you feel about returning to uh, an old friend? Which old friend are we talking about? Katara, you asshole. Oh shit. Yes. Oh my god. How could how could I forget? Yeah, I was um I was really uh delighted by Katara returning because one, she's voiced by Eva Marie Saint. Mm-hmm. And I, I had honestly completely forgotten about old Katara. You know, since because we haven't seen her since the very beginning of book one, right? Yeah. I think so, yeah. Yeah. So so at this point I had not even thought of her coming back into the picture and i thought that was a great way to bring her uh to bring her back into the story and you know helping heal cora and also offering her own perspective on someone you know who was very very familiar with uh, the previous avatar and about the challenges that that ang faced mm-hmm. it's it's an I interesting thought... continuation um this episode in two ways from last season where Korra's dealing with no longer having the Avatar um, chain to speak to, and what she decides to do in place of that is to speak to Zuko, one right. of Aang's friends. And now we have 
this episode where we kind of get back to that, where her connection to what the avatars that she's not the only avatar to face difficulty comes from former avatar associates. Yeah. Yeah. Which, all right, let's go ahead and get to the, the other avatar associate. Yeah. Come on, Arlo. Let's talk about it. I want, I want your reaction. Holy shit. It's just when like, I, I knew as soon as, as soon as we saw like this, shadowy figure I, I knew it was tough i mean the dress you know even i mean the, the dress is very clearly tough um yeah I, I i loved it i absolutely loved it and i have to say that um the 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 voice actor uh felice sampler mm-hmm. is she it's uncanny how well she captures like the d- delivery and intonations of jesse flower mm-hmm I mean, that sounded just like so, an older Toph would sound. So much better than older Zuko. <laughs> yes, much more believable yeah. than older Zuko. I mean, I, I love that they did the whole, um, you know, Korra is Luke on Dagobah. On Dagobah, yeah. And, and, and yeah, uh, Toph is Yoda. I thought that was such a great way to utilize Toph. And the fact that, she like so ruthlessly gives uh Cora shit. Oh my god, it was um, so beautiful. It was so perfect. I uh, I mentioned Amber was in the room with me and she she watched uh, that scene with me and she was like, I always liked her. <laughs> oh, Pam's, so Pam's favorite I, I never, character. Pam's favorite character. I never realized how much I missed tormenting the avatar. <laughs> my favorite my favorite bit of that was and I'm an old lady. Imagine me in my prime. I would have destroyed you. <laughs> so great. Holy shit. I um, mean, who, who, who better to, to build Korra back up after she's been broken down so thoroughly? It's, it's the perfect thing because unlike every other person, Toph will not give any, any leeway for Korra to self, to like self beat up and, and, and for me, though, the, the moment that I, I swelled the most at was when she calls her Twinkle Toes. Yes, I, yes. I literally teared up when she, even though, even though I knew it was coming, when she says, nice to see you again, Twinkle Toes, I was like, oh, God, because that's her talking to Aang. Oh, my God. Yeah, oh my yeah, God. that was so great. And I think, um, you know, everyone else that she's dealt with, you know, Zuko, Katara, everyone that Aang knew seems to have this sort of reverence for Aang. So it's not just that Toph won't let um Korra be self-pitying it's that yeah she she loved Aang but she also always took the piss out of him you know back in the day and she doesn't have this like image of him as a saint like she's not you know just mm-hmm. giving like words of wisdom like I think this is how Aang would have responded she's like she's dealing with with Korra as if she is Aang yeah that's a good call she's the She's the only person left that has that sees um, Aang probably totally unclouded because Katara yeah. was in love with him. So mm-hmm. Katara's view of, of of Aang is very emotionally close. It's like you know, not that she sees him um, incorrectly, but she has a very specific context with him. Um, and if Sokka were still around, Sokka would probably also have an interesting perspective on him. But everyone else is viewing Aang either as the adult that he became or. You know, Zuko owes so much to Aang mm-hmm. for Aang um, saving his, like, entire nation, basically, by putting him in the throne and, and helping him be a terrible, terrible ruler for a long time. <laughs> um, but Toph has none of that. 
there's there's no illusion that Toph sees of Aang, and I like that read that she's she's not she's not awed by the Avatar at all, really. And uh, as uh, as listener Alice uh, wrote to us last week, um, she was talking about I believe it was Alice that was talking about how. Um, you know this this final season that basically all of the seasons have been one way or another about how the world doesn't need the avatar and that this final season looks like it's the sort of resolution of you know does the world even need an avatar anymore and in these first three episodes it certainly is looking like that isn't necessarily the case and Toph just basically says that like I, I don't have the quote in front of me but uh uh, Cora says something to the effect of the world needs me and Toph is like what? The world doesn't need you the world does not need the Avatar Cora or whatever. She gives the best yeah. line which was a pure noir line of like the people change but the streets stay the same yes. or something. It was like she <laughs> yes. goes full noir detective which by the way I want a noir detective series starring Lieutenant Toph Beifong but oh, that um, that was a beautiful beautiful thought moment. Mm. Okay so I'm, I'm going to use this. We don't have to stop talking about uh, Toph, but I'm going to take this opportunity to springboard into animation because Studio Mirror is back. I believe they're back for the rest of the run. I think it's just... Oh, they haven't been gone since season two. Okay, yeah. I, I think I think it's just Mirror from now on. Um, however, I noticed in... I think it might have just been the first episode. Yeah. There, yep. were, there were a couple, um, specifically faces, and even more specifically, Asami and Mako, I noticed it on. There were a couple scenes where the facial animation on those two was really rough. Like, it, I don't know. I, yeah. Like, I, I, I noticed that hardcore, especially in the first episode. Immediately, I mean, my first question was, how drastically did the budget get slashed? Yeah, because... I, I don't know what was happening there, because I feel like by, certainly by the third episode... I think that's gone away i think but especially like during the like scenes like the the crowd scenes and stuff Mm -hmm. there were just clumps of people standing motionless in the background yeah it was it was very distracting as we've discussed many times that's not what studio mirror usually does they're very good about animating backgrounds I have some words about the budget this season, um, okay. the, and I guess this is the best time to talk about this because there's two. I, I was trying to figure out whether I should just call this out before we all got to it or not. Okay, so there's a couple of things going on, I think, with the budget. The most obvious and negative one is at some point when the season was getting into production, um, Nickelodeon cut one episode's worth of budget out of the show. Mm. And the um, company, in you know, the people in charge decided that they did not want to have everyone lose salary for an episode as a result. So there is the most dreaded of anime cliches in this season. The worst thing that you get in anime shows, and they almost always happen, the clip show. So we there's, have a clip there's show. One, there's one in this season? Really? There is a clip show episode this season. Wait, wait, can... wait, wait. There's a clip show? Yep. There is a... A let's re- let's talk about what's happened to the series this far episode this season. Now, oh, I, think I, I will say it. Oh, wow. it contains one of my favorite jokes of the entire series. Oh, God, I'm remembering it all of a sudden. I, I had brought this up before about the radio. It is in the clip show episode. There's a radio joke that is one of the funniest things the show's ever done. So... It is not a great episode, um, and we might want to look at the how we have the episodes broken up to make sure that that episode falls in a um, in the right place, yeah, so that it's, it's not like much of an episode because there's not going to be a lot to talk about. But anyway, so 
I don't like clip shows, but you got to give it to the to the showrunners for figuring out a way of letting the show continue and everyone to get paid for all the episodes and not to let Nickelodeon screw them. I will take a clip show episode over people not getting the job that they should have yeah. any day. Okay. It's uh, one. it's it's on an episode where we're going to talk about three chapters and it's the middle chapter. So I think that's okay. As long as it's not one of two, that's yeah. that's all right. Yeah. So um okay, so that's budgetary issue number 1. Budgetary issue number 2 is that um the end of this series is freaking huge. There is some crazy bonkers action that's going to happen at the end of this series. So my guess is that what they did was, okay, we lost an episode's worth of budget. So that's gone. We're going to do the bare bones minimum for an episode in episode of this clip show episode. But you still got to pay everyone. So it's not like you, you that episode cost nothing. So you still got to pay everyone. And you want to make sure the end of the series is suitably epic. So my guess is that they pulled some money out of the earlier episodes to make sure that they could keep everyone working, but also do the best possible job at the end of the show. So that is my read on what was going on budgetarily at this point in the show. It will not trust me. The end of the show is going to be baller. <laughs> baller. Uh, well, I feel like that probably makes uh, the most sense. Um, and I, I will say that it really, if that's what's going on, it's, they managed it damn well because with the exception of a couple facial animations and like Arlo said, some of the background stuff wasn't animated as fully as we're used to from studio mirror. It really didn't show. We still got um, like the Kuvira introduction fight with the bandits. That was still amazing. Um, like mo most of the animation has been fine. And I, I brought it up when we're talking about Toph because Toph, the animation for Toph, the design for old Toph is perfect it's stunningly beautiful um the animation of her in her little sparring matches with cora is is absolutely perfect so oh man toff's toff has like some classic kung fu moves of hands behind back and just moving her shoulders out of the way yeah to dodge things which is beautiful um combat animation yeah uh Man, all right. So where where do we go from there? Uh, do we have anything else Can't to say we... about Toph? Go ahead. Um, well, she yeah. Uh, there's actually a line that I wanted to bring up that I thought was um, was really beautiful. Um, oh, she she says, you know, "I'm more connected to the world than you've ever been. The roots and vines they run all over the world. I can see Sue and Lin, Zalfu and Republic City. I see everything." And then she says you're blind compared to me. Yeah. And I just think that's so beautiful that the character who cannot physically see has become the character who is more connected to everything than anyone. I, the more I think about it, like the more I rewatch the show and the more we talk about it now, this is possibly my favorite, uh, you know, result or whatever. This is my favorite treatment of one of the original cast. Yeah, I just she, love where, I love where Toph has come to in the world. world. Yeah, um, and and I, and I love that she says, just as an aside, oh my girls never really picked up metal bending all that well, if you ask me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like uh, no wonder they have complicated feelings about their mother. <laughs> we we really learned that like Aang was kind of a bad dad in some ways, not a terrible mm -hmm. dad, yeah, not not an unloving dad, but definitely not a great dad, uh, but. 
Toph is also not a not a fantastic parent. Not not the parent you would dream of um, at all. She had a different problem from Aang, who over over doted on his Airbender son. Mm-hmm. Toph was just sort of like whatever. Yeah, do whatever yeah, you want. Do what you want. Yeah. Um, um, speaking of Aang, real quick, I do love that when Korra like she's at that like food stand. And the guy has like a goofy picture of Aang. Oh yeah, I just I I really love that because because that's the that's the kind of levity we don't uh, we don't usually get from Korra herself. That that was a that was a pure Avatar humor bit. I feel like yeah that, no yeah. that that was a that was a callback to a to um oh, what was it I made a note of it uh yeah it was the spinning marble trick that he did in uh, Avatar book one episode four. Uh, the Warriors of Kyoshi. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, um, damn it. I was about to say something about Toph. I can't remember what it was now. Oh, no, I was going to ask. Um, Arlo, you haven't even commented on the fact of the, the Dagobah that we find Toph in is your favorite location. I know. I know. It's it's a swamp. Swamps it's by the swamp. themselves. It's the swamp. Well, the swamp is fine by itself. As long as we don't have the cast of Duck Dynasty, you know, <laughs> she, fucking things she, up. She brings up slapping them around, though. Yeah, she says uh-huh, they can't. She does. The, that these was... swamp benders can't take a punch. And I, I loved it. I okay. loved it. Okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, and in that episode, Ang discovered that uh, he could use the roots to connect. Like that's how he found, because Appa and Momo were lost in the swamp somewhere, and that's how he found. That's them. right. Yeah. So. Sorry, I've blocked most of the, most of that episode from my mind. <laughs> I know, I know. All right, so um, wow, what else do we have? To, to moving on past that, there's there's not a lot to talk about. Well, We're, we have. So, I mean, in that specific episode, uh, just in the in like, what haven't we covered? What else happened? Okay, well, there's there, there's a couple of smaller things we haven't covered, uh, but in this episode, I, we do want to. I want to mention the. Um, there's some of the metal still in Korra's body. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the poison is still in there, and she's so resistant of it coming out that Toph can't pull it out, and Toph is sick of it and tells her to pull it out herself, which is very interesting, and Toph gives her a very interesting talking to that maybe she's holding some in her body because it's a pretty good excuse mm-hmm. to not have to get out and fight again. Yeah. Which I thought was pretty brutal, but, well, you know. Yeah, that's Toph. That's tough. That is that is tough. Um, but what we haven't talked about um, is something that the end of episode three makes pretty clear is not going to be a small plot thread, which is Varric. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and so um, so we find Varric with a a chunk of spirit vine doing something that Kavir thinks is very important. Arlo, what are you, what are your thoughts on the mysterious Varric project? Yeah. I, I don't I my thoughts are unfortunately that I don't really know like I'm, I'm intrigued by it I want to know where it's going and, be, and I also love anything to do with Varric ever but I'm not sure I have a theory on what's going up with that spirit vine how do you feel about Varric and Varric working for Kavira I mean look Varric has always been a very uh, morally dubious character <laughs> Um, so it doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree. It, it makes perfect sense. It, it feels like a very Varric move. Very Varric. Very Varric. Very Varric. 
I I like that he had celebration tea, and I love the moment when it when it like it. She's like, I don't want to celebrate right now, and, and everyone just kind of quietly puts the tea down, uncomfortably sets their cups down. Yeah, so good. Um, that, also, that was also the scene that gave us her her uh, world domination map. Yeah, her metal world domination map, but she can pick up the puzzle pieces exactly and put in. Um, there's another interesting thing that was small, which is um. What what is um Lin's son's name? Batar. Batar Batar, Ju- Batar Jr. It's just Batar right. now, Mom. <laughs> but we get well, some interesting. You mean uh, Su Yin's son? Yeah. Yes. I'm sorry, yeah. Su Yin's son. Excuse me. Yes. Yes. Um, but there's wrapped up in this all is this interesting idea which I had mentioned before, but I I, I want to call one more time because it's it we get more of this sort of like Su Yin philosophy, which is that. Zhao Fu refused to get involved in putting the Earth Kingdom back together again. Mm-hmm. And it's caused a rather massive rift, not just with Kuvira, but with Batar. And I, I'm just wondering how the rest of you feel about it, because while I don't agree with Kuvira's militaristic takeover of everything, she has a point about Zhao Fu has all this technology and all this power, and they sit aside like, like the elves in Lord of the Rings. I don't know. It doesn't sit well with me. How did, how did this make you feel? It definitely seems like they're like a well, you know, they're wealthy and removed and feel like they don't need to contribute. Like I, th- I think Kuvira absolutely has a has a point, though. Of course, I agree with you, Eric. She's not going about it in the best way. You know, there's even a callback. Uh, tell me if I just imagined this callback or if you think it was there uh, when Kuvira is giving her whole uh, her military coup speech that she gives at the coronation. She says something about how, you know, growing up in Zaofu, uh, I learned, uh, I, don't, I don't even remember what she says, but uh, she's talking about how she developed her idea that, uh, you know, maybe the world doesn't need to be ruled by monarchs, maybe the world needs to be ruled by, by real people or whatever. And that reminded me of a scene from last season when they were all sitting around, they were in Zaofu and they were all sitting around the dinner table and Su Yin, this is before her and Lin sort of kissed and made up and Su Yin is talking about uh, how horrible the queen is and how it's outdated for there to even be a monarchy or whatever, or whatever. I just thought it's interesting that even back then they had sort of set it up, that that was the, that was the mentality. That was the idealism of Zhao Fu. And now we find out that well, they were perfectly fine. Fu, Go ahead. I think Zhao Fu is kind of like, it's it's like those those liberals that you know they they have all of the progressive ideals and everything, but don't actually do anything. Right. Like they're sort of yeah. they think that by saying those things and feeling those things, that's all that's necessary, and so they just sit by and let stuff happen. Yeah. There's a um a school of um of thought that about like this happens in like um in in feminist circles a lot when with like especially like affluent white white feminists who. The, who other like activists will refer to as fuck you I've got mine feminism mm. and there's an aspect of that to Zhao Fu I don't think they're that mean about it but it's definitely like well we have security we have prosperity and peace sure if you come here we'll, we'll let you be a part of our society that's okay but we're not really going to risk any of it to take care of it and, right. and it is and it's and also but it's also wrapped up in this this like pacifist idealism that she has. I mean, like Suyin's basically like Susan Sarandon of this world. <laughs> <laughs> that 
That's beautiful. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but anyways, that those are the things I wanted to catch up on. So I'm, I mean, I don't know if the rest of you have anything else, but I wanted to make sure we hit on those. So that's that's all I've got. Okay. Um, you know, we didn't, uh, we haven't addressed this, but um, Bo Lin actually points this out uh, very briefly in one of the episodes, and the in the art of book, I think it's Brian Kanitsko is talking about when they were coming up with the idea for Kuvira to be the villain. Um, the notion, well, first of all, Brian and, and Michael wanted to have a female antagonist because all of the antagonists before, I guess, you know, with the exception of Azula, but the, all of the main antagonists have been male. Uh, and they wanted a character that was more of a, like a direct match with Korra and Bolin at one point says that Kuvira and Korra are very similar. Like Kuvira is just like Korra, right. um, which brings up the whole question of mirroring and shadow character, you know, shadow selves and that kind of stuff. So how much of that do you see Arlo in just the first three episodes? Um, well, like I said, um, Kuvira has a noble goal and I think that's what, Cora wants to like you know she even said you know she wants to be out there she wants to be the one uniting the earth kingdom um but kuvira at this moment in time is the one who actually has the drive and ambition to do it whereas Cora is off like finding herself like literally finding herself mm-hmm. um and obviously they would go about it in super different ways though they, they both sort of have, like the avatar is a controversial position and could lead itself to authoritarianism if unchecked. Um, so I know. Yeah, I, I, I see it. I see the parallels. Cool. I like it. Um, all right. Uh, one last little, uh, or two last animation notes. Um, one we nobody pointed out that in the, in the underground bending match, the the design that was on the floor of the like cage match was the same one that was used in the Blind Bandit in Avatar uh, when we first nice. met Toph. So that was a little a little foreshadowing that we were about to meet Toph, I think. And then the other that's cool. The other is um, I can't remember. I think it was maybe in yeah, it must have been Korra alone during one of the flashbacks. There's a scene that uh i think it's it's playing we there's a scene while she while we're hearing voiceover of the letters that she's writing to people and she's standing on a cliffside and it's night and she's like bending uh she's going through bending movements and there's just the stars behind her do you remember that scene yes that is one of the most beautiful like <laughs> moments from both series i think i want like i want a screensaver that is just that as the camera pulls in on her doing various bending moves and this the entire like southern water tribe starscape is behind her also we did get the dolphin fish just like we were yes yes we did (laughs) what happened um all right well my last little question or talking point here unless anybody else has anything to bring up is uh just like with basically every other thing that we talk about lately here and on Gobbledy Geek, uh, it might be worth asking how this story relates to what's going on in the real world right now. 
definitely something to think about when we're discussing, you know, authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, how does Kavira compare with our own real world great uniter? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, or how is how is Wu's childish drive to rule as a figurehead while he lets others actually do his his job for him? Like, you know, I even we, we have I our own man child in chief now. So, yes, and you know, I thought of Trump when when Wu first came on the scene, but even over the span of these three episodes, Wu shows uh, humility that Donald Trump never will. Wu is Wu is I would say much more a a George W. Bush type, yeah, nice. than a Trump type. Um, nice. I actually, really, if I, you fuse if you fuse Wu and Kuvira together, then you've got Trump. Yeah, um, yes. Although although Kuvira has a level of competence uh, that even Wu has level <laughs> of competence that that our president doesn't. But, That's true. Um, and and Wu Wu's Trump does not have Wu's sick dance moves. That's yeah, very true. You, you, if, if, if it was time to Trump down, it would not be as cool as when you were down. Um, what what I do think is interesting in commenting on our current state, though, is we, uh, going back to something I think it was Paul that you brought up about how um, you know the Republic was going to prop up Wu with people that came. Mm-hmm. And what I think is interesting is underlying a lot of the problems we have right now beyond the the racism that powers some of it is – a definite sense that elites are just changing or are like carouseling in and out of power. Yeah. And that it's just a, a game of there's a perception that it's just a game of chess between people who already have and are already in power. And um, there's really no sense of anyone having any control over what they want to do. And the Earth Kingdom starts to back Kavira because she isn't that. Mm-hmm. Because she, even though. She's dangerous and she's been forcing people to follow her and there's all these warning signs. They fall in behind her because she's not Wu. She's not some noble who's being put in power by the United Republic uh, who's just going to put their own people in power. Kavira is a normal person who has stood up and put all this effort in to save the Earth Kingdom from the damage that worse people have done. So I think it does speak a little bit to the the, um, allure of an outsider – who is dangerous, but be simply because they are different than the elites who you were used to ruling. And that's, that's what I read on its uh, connection to now. Yeah. That's a, a very good, uh, a very good parallel. Well said. All right. I'm not going to top that. Arlo, you have anything else? Anything we didn't cover? I'm just looking forward to trying to guess what the next episodes are going to be about. I know that's all. That's the only reason you that's, ever tune in anymore. That is the only reason I do this show. <laughs> and, and and I want to apologize for not figuring out some kind of Brexit pun about the earth kingdom. I, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's gotta be in there somewhere. We'll, I, I know. We'll let it go. I, I it's, um, it was a failure of it, mine and I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we'll work okay. on it for next week. All right. So, that's it man we're uh we're into uh we're into book four so here we go strap in people um thank you everybody for joining us uh, as always you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website theavatarreturns.com links will also be posted on our parent show site gobbledygeekpodcast.com uh, you can subscribe to the show on itunes to make sure you never miss another exciting episode while you're there please be a hero and rate us or write us a review help spread the word and if you'd like to contact us, uh, send correspondence, or excuse me, correspondence, uh, care of monkey Yahtzee at tarpodcast at gmail.com. 
And of course, you can always find us on social media, facebook.com slash the avatar returns or twitter.com slash T-A-R podcast. And on Twitter, I am at haunt1013. Eric is at salon. That's S-A-A-L-O-N. And Arlo is at unplugged crazy. Uh, so next week, we keep trying to get our ballots on. As book four continues, three more chapters. Arlo, here we go. Crack your knuckles. Get ready. All right. Let's do it. So chapter 404, The Calling. Um, uh, uh, oh, man. Somebody but dials Cora. <laughs> okay. Four. Wow, that was rough. That was rough. That, that, was, that, that was, was a good save, though. You really struggled on that one, but. That was not me. That was not me at the the peak of my form. Let's do this. Come on, come on. All I right, can redeem myself. Two, two more chances. Four oh five. Enemy at the gates. Um. That's. Uh, fuck you guys. I'm I'm sucking. Uh. <laughs> this week. Um. Somebody's at the gates watching the Jake Gyllenhaal movie Enemy. God. Okay. I'm and, sorry. And four oh six. Man, people tune in for this every week. Carlo. I know you were letting know, our I, listeners I, down. I'm letting them down. Oh my god! All right, one more shot. Chapter four hundred six, okay. the Battle of Zaofu. I mean, there's not even a joke there. It's the <laughs> Battle of Zaofu. I mean, you had two chances. Don't 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 come at this third episode like it's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh wow. Uh, tonight was my very own uh, Trump trying to pass the American Health Care Act moment. <laughs> wow. All right. I'm so sorry. Uh, Jesus. I, 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 I go home like shamed. Yes. Arlo has let you all down. I apologize, people. He'll be much better next week. Uh, I promise. That's not really a promise that I can make, but I'm going to make it anyways. So uh, until then, don't let my reputation intimidate you. I'm still human, just like everyone else, only more human, like extra human or hmm, superhuman. I met them in a swamp down in Dagobah, where it bubbles all the time like a giant carbonated soda. S-O-D-A, soda. I saw the little rent sitting there on a log. Him his name and in a raspy voice he said Yoda Y-O-D-A Yoda